0: This podcast is brought to you by a-eon.biz and Viva Amiga, the story of a beautiful machine. For more information on that, go to amigafilm.com. Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is Dr. Michael Ashley. I've known Michael since he was working at the University of California, Berkeley. Since then, he's moved on from the world of nonprofits to the world of benefit corporations. Benefit corporation is the main topic of what we discuss. Underlying themes include data preservation, so the old chestnut of the digital dark age as Stuart Brand called it, as well as the transition from digital to paper. Now for most people listening to this podcast, you may think, well, that happened a long time ago. actually, in terms of workplaces and industries, say for example, the architectural, engineering and construction industry, that's not necessarily the case. Things can move slightly slower when you're looking at things on a corporate or institutional structure level. And Michael and I talk about that quite a bit. Another thing we explore is how his background in anthropology is feeding into his world of technology now, shall we call it. It's giving him a long-term perspective on how to preserve the intangible for tomorrow because one of the things of the digital dark age is moving from say things like the clay tablet is often the example given to things that you can physically touch is how do you save it for the future and that is one of the things michael is looking to tackle through codify anyway i will leave you with michael But in the meantime, I will also remind you that if you want to support this podcast, you can do it in a number of ways. You can contact me directly at contact at remotely-interested.com. You can also go to the website, which is remotely-interested.com. Or if you go to the SoundCloud, you'll notice there are a lot of links to Facebook pages, Twitter pages, and things like that, all that good stuff like Stitcher. So why not rate, subscribe, and review? Because the more you follow, the more I love doing this for you.
1: We founded this nonprofit, the Center for Digital Archaeology, five years ago. And it actually stemmed out my academic work at UC Berkeley with a a great crew of people, including Meg Conkey and Ruth Tringham and uh, Tim Gill, who are all uh, great archaeologists, and and Jerry, who also happens to be my wife. And so, you know, the idea was that we wanted to really focus on issues around digital preservation and the long-term sustainability of knowledge, which is a critically important thing, especially in archaeology, where we kind of tend to destroy the evidence by virtue of what we do in excavation. And sometimes you only get one, one chance to do it right. So we have dedicated our ourselves to this over the last five years. Nonprofits are, are awesome. It's been great to be you know grant funded, and we've done a ton of projects around the world. But there are a couple challenges. Some of them are legal. Nonprofits, you're not allowed to get investment funding, although there is something that's called programmatic investment, which is a possibility. But effectively, if you want to seek investment capital or building something like software, which is something we're very keen on doing, you have to be some form of for-profit. Problem with for-profits, though, is that you're legally bound to maximize profits for your shareholders. And so here comes along this thing called a benefit corporation. And just a couple of examples of benefit corporations, Ben & Jerry's, Patagonia, Kickstarter, Equator Coffee. What a benefit corporation is, you have a social enterprise good statement and mission. And through that enterprise statement, so that social good mission, you basically have to be externally audited to uphold that. But if you do that, then you don't have to maximize profits for your shareholders because basically it's saying that in the interest of the public good, no, this really great, wonderful thing we built, we're not going to start using, you know, to build small nuclear power plants in South America. You know, it gives you the ability to basically control your fate.
0: So it gives you a moral buffer essentially in one respect. You can be ethical, completely ethical through the way in which you're doing things.
1: That's right. You know, so we we actually started it over a year ago very quietly just for the purpose of getting everything set up. But now Now it's becoming very clear that we want to be able to extend what we've learned about in archaeology to a more broad mission I mean basically what we realized is that well what people keep telling us that therefore must be true is that the software and workflow approaches we've stumbled upon are salient relevant and essential for everyone I mean anyone who's dealing with digital content needs to have a way to have it be somewhere that is secure, understand what it means to have content be archival so that it actually will be sustained over time. We need to be able to have it be accessible so that it's you know as we move from phone to phone or computer to computer that it's actually going to have a place. And this is all not trivial stuff. We everyone's lost data. Everyone I know has lost some form of data. And we really want that to be forever. So this is a kind of our acronym of safe. We want everything that we do that matters to be secure, archival, accessible forever. And and that's that that, that, that's a mission that extends well beyond archaeology. So the, the intent with Codify is to start with archaeological and cultural heritage content. But already we're we're being approached by individuals and companies that that see broad uses. I mean, I had a conversation with our payroll guys, and they're like, oh my God, some of the things you're, you're talking about would radically help us with human resource needs. So it's it's an it's an interesting time and twist, but we're kind of adamantly dedicated to the social good. And it's not a thing for us, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a catch-all throwaway line it's really kind of where our souls are
0: sounds as though on the technology end as well you're feeding into something which i've seen quite a lot of recently which is this transition from paper or old media to new media which has a whole level of intangibility that we've not necessarily considered before when you're discussing what you're discussing for instance i see massive applications in something called the aec industry which is architecture engineering and construction for example there's a startup out of portland called m6 which are doing a lot of stuff in something called the building information modeling space where Whereby they're bringing in everything as a database and then trying to link everything together. And that's a cloud-based effort and it sounds very similar to what you're trying to achieve. It's all about this tangibility of intangible digital information and a massive flow of information as well would that be correct
1: yeah actually I'm really glad you brought that up because if you think about uh, construction so it's a kind of almost a little known fact that if you're going to build a building or put it in a pipeline or build a smart train rail you need an archaeological assessment so what what archaeology does is is a, is a twist really on construction. I, I find really, a really interesting app that's come out and they're, the company's doing really well. It's called PlanGrid. You may have heard of it. PlanGrid runs on iPads. And basically it's the same thing. They're replacing blueprints and putting them into a pad-based application that can be taken onto site. So there's a lot, of, a lot of overlap here. And what we're trying to do is say, yes, that's awesome and fantastic. We can learn a lot from that. And we don't want to, I, I don't like reinventing wheels. So that's all great. We have this additional mandate of making sure that the knowledge that's being generated on these sites has a perpetuality to it, so it's just to put that in real simple terms. It has to be self-documenting. It's not. It's not just good enough to have kind of sign-offs on things to, to move the project forward. It's like, okay, have we done everything we possibly can? Because this is our one chance to do the archaeology of this place before it's completely excavated out, and we put in a cement foundation and build a new building. Or, as I mentioned here in California, you know, high-speed rail. Or right here in the Bay Area, the smart train is being put in. So I'm love what's happening now especially in the architecture and engineering space because all of that work that they're doing to mobilize what has been at best put onto laptops and has typically been a desktop kind of pc space is now being mobilized all the way down to a phone and that's fantastic and that's really great for the archaeological discipline as well
0: it's interesting that you do use the term archaeology in the way that you're using it because i've seen it before at computing conferences hardware conferences and stuff like that where they use the term archaeology and i think it does have a broader meaning and can be applied to other disciplines because i think the beauty of something like anthropology or archaeology it totally crosses a number of fields that necessarily other things don't so i think it's it's no surprise that someone like you have come out of say the digital preservation space in a heritage context and is now looking to apply it to a broader field because there are elements to it that apply everywhere because it's always thinking about the long term and the long-term preservation of something and i think that we are in a i don't know a weird phase of transition or a moment of crisis i'm not too sure
1: that's a wonderful opening to talk I think a little bit more about why we've transitioned from academia into a nonprofit and nonprofit to to for-profit. So first of all, we haven't transitioned at all. We're firmly, you know, still planted in in academia, but the world is bigger than academia. We work a lot with uh, with native tribes um, and indigenous communities around the world. And many or most of them don't have primary access to or I'd like to say the affordance of what's called a trusted repository, a digital repository that you may get if you're fortunate enough to be affiliated with say UC Berkeley or um, another cultural memory institution of any form. So if you think about what's really interesting about archaeology and anthropology and and also working with tribes is you realize that the most important stuff is the intangible things that happen, the, the conversations that happen around the documentation. The documentation that we do is supposed to be the thing so that we can find the thing that we want to find, like that picture or that audio recording of the last living speaker of a language, which by the way is something we deal with a lot. So if you think about it, the stuff that matters the most to humanity is at the greatest level of risk because it, it isn't tailored to go easily into somebody's trusted repository. Not to mention, you may not want to put your stuff into the trusted repository of a university if it's, you know, family knowledge or private information or secure. It must be secure information because it has, you know, geolocations. There's a variety of reasons why that is the only way. However universities and cultural memory institutions of course have the, the best toys when it comes to this what we would like to do is see a way to make it possible for everyone to have that same level of trust that same that same capacity and to do that that moves beyond that, that that's the reason to transition to having a company that's solely dedicated to that purpose and that that's uh, I think you, uh, what you said is is really perfect where it's it's a, a kind of an anthropological sensibility that we're wrapping around this technological package and it, we're trying to or a kind of a greater humanitarian mission. So archaeology is a definitely a part of it, but it's really it really transcends that in the sense that. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is a human need, but it has been said several times, I've written about it myself, that currently right now in 2016 and back into the 90s, we're looking at what will likely be a digital dark age. And why that is, and it's not, you can actually Google it, you'll, you'll, you, we can all uh, check out what the Google say about digital dark age. It's because while hard drives and, and processors are getting bigger and faster all the time, our ability to manage all that data has never been at a higher risk than now. Combined with The fact that we went through just a kind of a crazy evolutionary time. I mean, I don't know if people even remember what zip drives are. USB drives are barely a thing. DVDs are going out. I have a whole bunch of CDs right this weekend. I've been. Trying to transfer to make digital because you know, and I had to go find a CD player to plug into my Mac because Macs don't have you know DVD or CDs. So we get the idea. This transition that's been happening all the time, and if and if stuff is being stored on these old or me- mediums, and again, we're really only talking ten to twenty years ago. So when we say old, that's not even that long. Somebody has to want to want to care about that stuff. That's the greatest challenge, and maybe that would be a nice a nice additional topic around stewardship. Of knowledge going forward, there has to be a, a people who are dedicated to the transition from these different media, and that just opens a whole can of worms of who has access to the data, what format are they in, and all the other questions that most people don't have to think about daily until you go back and go, oh my God, I need to get to my you know 2010 taxes that were in on some you know dot mac account that I no longer use, which by the way it happened to me. So this is the kind of stuff that doesn't hit us directly until it really is a problem.
0: Yeah, and I I mean, I think that's interesting as well because I think it also, it raises an idea of cultures of interest or cultures of use as well because say for example something that I'm very interested in is retrospective and historical computing and it's been very interesting for me to observe how it seems to be more of the enthusiast groups that have a better way of dealing with this stuff than maybe research institutions and stuff like that because I've actually seen examples of that where a research institution has got an old computer it happens to have some files from a noted person in academia or celebrity as well and they couldn't retrieve the data so they had to go to a local historical computing society in order to get the stuff that they needed to do it because they didn't have the pool of talent in that institution even though they had a computer science department you know so i think the culture of use and interest is a real big issue with preservation in my opinion would you agree with that
1: i I would totally agree with that you you brought up at the very beginning of our of our chat we see this transition now from from the medium known as paper so this is the wonderful thing about having an archaeological perspective is that you know if we look at the at the continuum of different forms of media from stone tablets and cuneiform and papyrus and paper and then the radio telegraph and you know and then these various digital forms what's happened is that the overall lifespan of the physical medium film i can't please do not forget film and and uh, silver halide printing. The physical medium now has the least shelf life, and at the same time stores so much more—an exponential amount more of data—and it requires some form of technological beast, like an Amiga, <laughs> or a Commodore sixty-four, or whatever it might be, in order to run it. So you're right. The, and those, the, the you know the ROMs we have for for games or whatever it might be. So enthusiasts are great because they they have the they, we, I'm I'm in that category, have the energy and the desire and will to keep these things going. You know, Ru- Ruth Tringham, who uh, is a you know, dear colleague of, of mine and ours, in fact, she uh, you know was we just talking this weekend at a board meeting. She hasn't upgraded one of her machines because it's a particular software she needs. Like It has all the archives for the projects we did back all the way into the 90s. And if we, in the last migration of, of the operating system, that software will no longer function, has not been supported for five years. We will literally lose that data if we don't keep that computer alive. And that's just in the last couple of years. If we go back to, we were talking with a, a wonderful scanning company here called ScanSight right here in in California. They have projects, they've been doing scanning for 23 years. And they have some of these projects go back to they're running on floppies. Now they've done a fantastic job of migrating all of their data, but it's almost a full-time job just to do that, you know? When, when, when a company comes back to you and says hey you know we did this fantastic project in 1993 you know and you you're considered to be the the source of truth for that data the expectation is that you'll just have it and again that's true until it's not <laughs> so it has to move beyond the computer museums um uh, and the enthusiasts to being something that as uh, is as important culturally as as any other phenomenon and the good news is and there's a lot of good news here is that that's happening i mean i feel like with now with the kind of the maker generation, the Maker Fair generation, uh, the Ar- Arduino and Raspberry Pi generation, there's a lot of tinkering now going on, and and a lot of resurgence of of this, and a, and a and an interesting and very hopeful nostalgia, which is cool. But again, those of us who are over the age of forty <laughs> are going, and most of the, my colleagues just don't just don't really realize this, and they're, they're till they're going back, going, "Oh my God, I have no way of blank," you know, of recovering the the files of my of my child's birth or my wedding. When that starts happening more and more, which is probably five to ten years from now, then everyone's going to wake up and go, "Oh my God!" So I just want to help make sure that that's less painful then. So I feel like we still have a window of time to be working on this problem, but. But we need to get going.
0: I think another interesting thing that you brought up earlier about oral histories and stuff like that, certainly on the technical end, there's an old, what I would call qualitative aspect of this which you know for instance there was a paper that dr cradock peters and i wrote for a book chapter for a left coast press book and that goes through it you know there's there's a whole sort of question of narrative that isn't being explored on a technical level as well what i what i would call and what you kind of referred to as almost water cooler talk and it's how how do we compensate for that you know as well and i think there's a lot of intangibles there and it, it's not an easy question to uh get an answer to but we're kind of getting there i feel
1: while i was still at berkeley teaching there it, it's been interesting to see a transition from gen x to gen y to gen whichever gen we're on now the millennial generation etc a couple things happening they're really exciting but also kind of telling and and also concerning all of those things are true now suddenly as as we're seeing the young younger generation coming off of facebook and want and a desire for privacy privacy being one of the one of the the top concerns of when i say younger generation i'm talking you know it's still in your teens so 18 and below the generation above that there was less concern about privacy, everything's social, and things like Snapchat, the idea that ephemera is cool, that we don't need to hold on to things. So there's a lot of forces that are interesting in the sense of like, okay, well, it makes you think, hey, maybe we don't need to keep everything. But when someone that you love passes, I lost my father a couple of years ago, or someone that you love is born, or you come, you know, um, I, have a, I, just, I just found out I have a high school reunion coming up pretty soon. And I have all the physical slides that we took of all the seniors that, you know, back in the day. And that's pretty amazing to have that, that nostalgia, you know, X years ago. You know, so it's, it's like when your high school reunion, your 30th or 40th high school reunion comes along, and you wanna look at old photos, if they were on film, that's a no-brainer because they're still going to be around. But digitally, will they? That is an actual question. I've had conversations with people at the Library of Congress, the Smithsonian. This is a real question. This is a very serious concern. Will they last? This ephemera, this the water cooler talk, the the tweets, you know, all of these things, some of which actually matter, <laughs> you know, will will those happen? The incidental smile. I mean, there's a lot of poetry that, that I, I think about a lot. But again, I'll just say this. Once again, working with uh, indigenous communities around the world has has absolutely transformed my brain and has, has set me on a mission to make it possible to sustain the incidental, if you will, the, the conversations that are not planned in a documentation project and in such a way that they have the same level of security as the oral traditions and histories that have been told for 50,000 years in Aboriginal culture. That's not the watermark. I don't know what is. You know, The idea that they have a continuous oral tradition that goes back 50,000 years And it's an unbroken line. That's what I'm just hoping that we can have digitally. So, you know, I'm open to talking with everybody in the world that wants to help do this. And it's... It's actually a pretty fun problem to try to solve.
0: And do you think, I mean, certainly with, you know, the Aboriginal side of things, do you think a lot of that is to do with the way in which information flows and is distributed? Because obviously, you know, you tell one person, they tell another person, they t- it's like the Wayne's World Effect, he'll tell his friend, he'll tell his friend, and he'll tell his friend type thing. Do you think there's a
1: strong element to that? I think that is the actual, that's the secret to it all. The, the, the safest place to keep the memories is within us as humans. That's how we're going to transfer the knowledge. Whether it's language, in, in order to keep a language going, someone's got to keep speaking the language, you have to be able to hear the language. You had to create the opportunity to do that. You had to create the desire and will in the next generation to do that. Well, it just turns out that countless communities around the world, that's just what they do. It's just normal. However, there's a really interesting twist to the story. And that is what what I, I call differential knowledge, which is typically, I'll give an example. We were doing a workshop in, in, in Sydney, in New South Wales. And what came up was there are certain songs, imagery, and stories that can only be told, quote, in country. In other words, they have no desire at all to record them digitally because they're intended to only be told by one person to another at a particular tree in a particular place in the world. I I think that's amazing and fantastic. The challenge there is that those individuals that can tell that story are dying, okay, so that there is risk. So then the idea is like, well, this is where digital could help because we can record the elder and co-presence that conversation still in country. So if you think about it, the technological challenge there would be, would it be possible to create it. And the answer, by the way, to this is yes. But would it be possible to create a digital experience that knew that you were at that tree, so geolocation, had the differential authority through cultural protocols, which are done normally person to person, in this case with technology, to afford the listening to the next generation? I think that's just an amazingly cool way of leveraging this phenomenal knowledge and ways of doing things in a human, non-digital way. And yet still finding a way to, to perpetuate this at a time where there is, you know, it's a risk of knowledge really being lost
0: it's an interesting example because in one respect if it doesn't get preserved then no one's going to know about it but if it does get preserved then it takes on new meaning by the engagements that are going on and how it's being preserved that's that's a very interesting and tricky one but i think as well it also so howard reingold is a good source of introduction for this but the idea that networks are the new literacy in the digital age become a really interesting idea to me recently because it, it does it transcends the idea of a network you know whether it's a social network whether it's a network of sensors whether it's a network of anything out it is This crosstalk of communication, I think, is one of the main and key things to all of this. And communication can go on in various different ways. So I find that very interesting.
1: It's been really interesting to us as well. I mean, so, so one of the, one of the um, reasons that we find that many communities don't want to have their stuff on the Internet, it turns out to be a very real concern, which is if you put it on the Internet, it's really hard to make it die. So the it, you know for ephemeral things that shouldn't be remembered or shouldn't be shared, digital has this long term memory problem because you make copies in order to see stuff, right? You know, in, in order for me to even have this conversation with you, my computer is caching this video, so I get to see Adam later if I wanted to dig to the cache on my computer, c uh, a c h e cache. So you know, it, it's one of these things where setting up systems that allow a a much more human network to lead. Has been that's been the last five years. So this project we've been working on, we do M U K U R T U bukidu CMS, which is a content management system now completely open source, built on Drupal, to make differential knowledge a possibility. One of the key things, uh, again, back to this workshop that I think you'll find really fascinating is it isn't so much that the the various communities we're meeting with in in Australia only want to preserve; they also want to make sure that. The conditions in their digital ecology are designed so that they can manage what's called avoidance protocols. An avoidance protocol would be something like a person just passed away in the last week. And particular communities don't want to see a picture of that person for a period of time. And each community has the time in which they want to decide how long that is. And 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 it's just done normally. For example, one one family had they they were from one location and they had some family coming up from, from the south. And these particular relatives were very specific, very kind of dogmatic about not wanting to see pictures, not wanting to hear songs sung, not wanting to hear anything for you know six months. And they came to the house and they, they were hearing these songs and they were seeing the photo albums and they said, hey, you have to stop this. So just physically, they just made a decision, close the photo albums, let's have conversations and talk about these folks, but I'm not gonna see pictures of them, we're not gonna hear songs right now. How do you do that digitally? How do you make it a safe place where people can can know that if I'm an 18 year old female from this particular, particular community that I won't see things that will cause me harm. Now think about that statement. Doesn't that sound like something we all want anyway? Like I have a four-year-old kid. I want an internet place where I can build an environment for my kid, or better, someone can build an environment for my kid so he can go and have an, an, an experience online that's designed safely for four-year-old kids. So that's what I'm saying. This is These, these are incredibly amazing conversations and learning moments that have been happening that, that are just transforming the way we we are all of us here at the Center for Digital Archaeology and now Codify as well are just thinking about these things and trying to figure out, you know, and looking at at, at pretty incredible examples of how people are in fact trying to do this. I just feel like we have a, a long way to go.
0: So, where do you see yourself moving in the future then, in terms of projects and in terms of where Codify is
1: going? Codify uh, is going to focus primarily on developing software, on taking, on, on really being specifically focused. And we've we've learned a lot from from helping to develop Mukadu CMS with Washington State and organizations from around the world. So we're gonna continue that mission. Of, of making uh, Mookadoo better and on developing Codify, which is the, the application suite that we plan to make readily available to people around the, around the world that want it for collecting, curating, and sharing information. So that's going to be our primary focus over the next several years. So just this year, we'll be releasing Codify 2.0, be our first public release in the spring. We'll be using it on projects throughout the Middle East and into Africa, in Ethiopia specifically, in May, June, and July, which is really exciting. Exciting, and then we'll come back and uh, start to work with various other cultural resource management firms in the fall. So that's our kind of this year plan. And then, you know, we're we're in it for the long durée. We're going to be, you know, continuing to move on the software and make it better and improve it over over time as we as we keep going.
0: Okay. And so if people want to reach out to you, they want to help you, they're interested in what you're doing, various different ways they want to communicate with you, what's the best way to do it?
1: You can always just drop me an email. So that's michael at o r g or .com, either way. For, if you're interested in projects, then by all means, I would go to org. And if you're interested in codify, stay tuned. I mean, we have our basic site, but we're going to be completely iterating and evolving this site at com.
0: So one of the outcomes I found very interesting of talking with Michael was this idea of humans as transmitters and receivers of information where in the long term one way in which we can preserve various types of digital information will be through spreading the word or spreading it out through whether it's social media or the internet or various forms of I guess decentralized modes of production is how it can be preserved in the long run and one of the things I have put in the write-up to this podcast on the SoundCloud page is a link to Howard Rheingold's work on digital literacy and networks. Howard has done quite a lot on how networks are a new form of literacy in this day and age and how it's vital to understand those and how to navigate those. I would also recommend his book, NetSmart, as well, as it is a good read. As always, I will speak to you next time. I hope you enjoyed this one. It was certainly very interesting and thought-provoking for me. And yeah, there may be a little uh, Halloween surprise in the future. Anyway, until next time, I'll see you soon. Hello there. My name's Adam Spring, and I'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the Remotely Interested podcast. As I've said before, it's listener supported, and I love to include you guys as as much as I can. Anyway, the big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share. You can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play, where you can check this podcast out, and there's also a Facebook page that you can like. Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a twitter handle which is at that interested you can also follow and reach out to me there and there's also the remotely interested email as well which is contact at remotely-interested.com anyway i love doing this for you i hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening to the show